guess. John chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Familiar portion of scripture for many, but I do believe that I know the Lord has spoken, I think, to me uh, in the last little while uh, freshly from this uh, portion of scripture. And so I want to share that with you today. John chapter 1, starting at verse 1, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, the same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light, that was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Would you pray with me before we start today? Heavenly Father, gracious King, I ask for your blessing on this people today. And on these words that I'm about to speak, Father, I, I don't really have the right words to say today. I'm, I'm going to probably make some slip-ups. I'm probably not going to communicate everything that I believe you would like to communicate perfectly. But Father, I believe that you speak today. Father, I believe that you can speak to each individual who needs to hear something today, that needs an, a need met today. Father, I believe that you have the power to do so. And I ask that you would walk these aisles as I am unable to do today, and touch hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. There are a few descriptive words one could use to communicate the beginning of the earth, as described in Genesis 1. Dark, empty, chaotic. God creates the heavens and the earth, but the earth is right away described as distinct from heaven. Nothing is said of the creation of heaven, just that it was. But the earth is called out for its deformity. The implication, it seems to me, is that heaven does not need to be addressed in the same way as earth. Maybe, not sure about this, but maybe heaven was ordered. Heaven was beautiful. It was good, and it was full of good things. All the things that the earth at this point in time still lacked. Because earth, we know for sure, was without form, empty, dark, and chaotic. The only things really mentioned as present, as far as we know, is a body of water, the deep which for the ancient mind, reading these words, denotes those very things, darkness and chaos, the unknown. And the Spirit of God hovered 
over the waters. With the admission that the Spirit of God is stirring something up in the primordial chaos and darkness of the earth, the first character in the Bible begins to speak. And as God speaks, the things he desires to come into being come into being. Verse 3, and what follows is a notable contrast when compared to verse 2. Now, if you're following along today, I I didn't read Genesis chapter 1, although, as you'll see, there might be quite a few similarities. But open up a Bible for a moment and take a look. Just take a look at it. Follow along. I'm not going to quote each verse and chapter, but it's, it's pretty easy to see. Verse 3 and what follows is in complete contrast with the picture that we're given in verse 2. Verse 2, remember, darkness, chaos, emptiness. Verse 3 and what follows, not just what God says, but the way it is structured in the text itself is the opposite. First of all, he answers the darkness with light. And God said, let there be light. God has an answer for darkness. The pattern of the entire chapter for two, for the second uh, thing that we can see here, the pattern of the entire chapter is very ordered and structured. You notice that? It's, It's very predictable what's going to happen on the next day. Something is going to be created. And then we're going to say at the end of that verse that it's the evening and the morning or the first day or the second day or the third day. Very predictable, very ordered. It is a literary response, if you will, to the formlessness and chaos of verse 2. And finally, he fills the emptiness of verse 2 with things, all kinds of things. Beautiful things, living things, flying things, creeping things, life-giving things. And he calls these things good. Some scholars have noted how the structure, six days of creation with, I don't know if you've noticed this before, but there are spaces created on the first three days, the first group of three days. And then there are things to fill the spaces on the second group of three days. And this repeated pattern, and God said, let there be, there was, the evening and the morning were such and such a day, points to Genesis 1 being in the form of a poem. It's as if we're being introduced to what God does. I like to call it the the hymn of creation. And through it all, God emerges as a unique character, one who is all-powerful, transcendent, and above all, holy. I'm not sure if you feel the same way about this as I do, but if Genesis 1 is a song, it's not background music. It's not elevator music. You ever been on the elevator before and you didn't even realize it was playing, but all of a sudden you're humming it? I've never heard this song in my life. Now you probably have every elevator you've ever been on plays that song. And somewhere somebody's making a ton of money because they're streaming that song. 
But it's not background music to me. Genesis 1, I, I hear it as a crescendo. It's an epic. It's an entire symphony. And it's fitting for a God who creates the world by the sound of his voice. He wills it into being. He speaks it into being. And we learn very quickly that he is all-powerful, transcendent, and holy. And might I add, at this point, mysterious. Who is this God that wills things into being? And then chapter 2. Genesis 2 for me is a descent into the details of creation and of its creator. And as the crescendo of chapter 1 concludes and the crashing waves of that new sea settle against the shores of that newly minted land that God has made, so to speak, the hum of the last instrument dies out. If you can visualize it with me for a second, we take a step back and we are given a glimpse of an earth that has not yet had trees or plants spring up from the ground because it hasn't rained yet and there's no one to till the ground and there we catch a glimpse in that barren place that barren earth of a god on his hands and knees planting a garden that's what it says. He planted a garden. As we make our way through the chapter and watch how this God interacts with his creation, we learn that he also now has a name. No longer just God, Elohim, but the Lord God, Yahweh, Elohim. He plants the garden, we're told. He breathes into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. He gets right in Adam's face. I don't know, maybe, was that a liberal interpretation? He, you think that's liberal, watch this one. He even performs the first surgery. I mean, you want to talk about a hands-on God. I don't know how to describe this, but he, you know, opens up Adam and takes out a rib and creates Eve. This is a God that is personal, that is close, that is involved, and I would say even caring. The contrast in Genesis 1, we're not talking about a different God here. We're talking about the same God, and that's what's amazing to me. The contrasts in Genesis 1 and 2 capture the trajectory, I think, of the entire Bible. God desires for heaven and earth to be united so that he can dwell with his people. He can dwell with humankind, his very good creation, the ones he so loves. It's all there. We see it in the beginning. Heaven, the dwelling place of God, is with humanity on earth in this garden. The sum of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, I think, is that heaven and earth, God's place and the place that we live belong together. 
God's efforts are pointed toward this fact throughout the biblical narrative. He wants to be present with his beloved creation. He wants to be present with human beings. Heaven and earth seem to be in the picture of the garden mingled together. It's hard to tell. God's walking in the cool of the day. He's right up in Adam's face. He's there. Human beings are continually in the presence of God, it would seem, working meaningfully toward his purposes, having dominion. And then, of course, Genesis 3 happens. And to sum it up, I won't go into great detail here, but humans basically decide decide that, well, I'm not sure if I can trust the the way you've laid things out here. And so I'm going to choose what I think is right and what I think is good, and I'm going to go down this path and see where it leads, even though they've been warned that it leads to death and certain destruction. But they do it. They desire to be their own God. And in doing so, they cause a rift between heaven and earth. Their choice causes them to be disqualified from the life-giving presence of God. This is why eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil causes death, right? Because to say it another way that might be more helpful, there's no room for two gods in your life. So if you're going to be God, then God can't be God. Right? And so I, I, I believe that that's what it means when it says that the way was guarded to the tree of life. Because you can't have two gods in your life. You can't have two life sources in your life. And so really they cut themselves off from the only thing that was giving them life. And when you cut God out of the equation, you also cut out the thing that gives you life. This is a garden thing, but it's also a right now thing, right? We live this out. We have. It sounds familiar. The thing about this rift, though, between heaven and earth is that it doesn't remain unaddressed. It is really the fuel and the motivation for a lot of the narrative that we see in the Old Testament. It's one that God works with humans to try to restore and repair throughout the Old Testament over and over again. Uh, just a, a quick list of how this works out in, in that story. This is, this is why Abram is called out from among his people and, and promised a family that would bless all the other families of the earth. That's why. Because God wants to be with his people. God wants to be among us. This is what Israel's existence is for. I had a professor in university that used to say that. He said, and I never forgot it, simple little thing. But uh, the world wasn't created for Israel. Israel was created for the world. This was for the benefit of everyone that God put us on this path. It was always about the whole It was always about God so loved the world. This is what the tabernacle's about. It really comes into focus in the tabernacle, doesn't it? And later the temple. If you look at the descriptions of the decor in the temple, it's it's images of the garden. It's images of the garden. It's the gems of the garden. It's gold, precious gems. Even the cherubim. The cherubim that guard the way to the tree of life now guard the way to the holy of holies. Cherubim on the curtains. It's all there. This is the meeting place. This is the tent of meeting. 
Not where everyone meets because we know it was a very isolated group that got to get in there. But it's the place where God meets Israel. It's the place where God comes and dwells with his people again. Eden and temple, it's kind of like the temple or the tabernacle before that is like a mobile Eden. It's a miniature. It's what the Ark of the Covenant is about too. Because that's the place where God comes and meets, you know, the Day of Atonement and all that stuff. It's, a, it's about God's presence with Israel. They want to take the Ark of the Covenant up first to know that God's gone before us, right? It's about his presence. So many stories in Israel's history about, about this question of God's presence. Is he with us or not? Remember when the Ark of the Covenant got stolen? What a crisis that was for them? Because they were identifying the presence of God with the box. That's what it's all about. There is a continued project through the pages of the Old Testament to have God dwell among his people. And as you know, perhaps it fails many, many times. And by the end of the Old Testament, Israel is having its ultimate identity crisis. Who are we if the presence of God has departed, if the temple has been destroyed and there's nothing left? The holy city is desolate. Read Jeremiah. That's what it's about. Where are you, God, if the place where you are supposed to meet with us is gone? There's a serious identity crisis and that's what motivates Ezra and Nehemiah to take the people back and to start construction on a new temple because we need that place. We need that place where God meets us. We need to build a house so that you can live there. It's not a bad motivation, right? Man, if I could build a house that God could live in, I'd do it. I built a closet once. Hang your coat here, Lord. It's not much. It's what I have. But I'd do that. Any of us would. And that's what they're doing. It's a good motivation. It's a good thing. We want God to be with us. And God wants to be with us. So let's build this place where he can meet us. And as we close the page of the Old Testament, that's where Israel is left. And when we open to the new... There has been a temple built, but there is a major problem. Roman occupation. If God is with us, then why are we being occupied by this foreign group? And so John chapter 1. The text that I read today. It parallels Genesis 1. I think that's fairly clear. I, and I called Genesis 1 the hymn of creation. So you could call John chapter 1 the hymn of new creation. Right? He starts off by saying, in the beginning. And it's very plain that that's not accidental. He's trying to draw the reader's mind back to another time. In the beginning. And then he starts to, he starts to talk about the same things that are being talked about in Genesis 1. Creation. Life. Darkness, light. And the Apostle John is writing sometimes around, sometime around the 90s AD, as far as we know. 
And as far as we know, he's the last surviving member of the 12 apostles. John, the beloved from Jesus' inner circle. He knows he doesn't have long to live. He'd be an old man by the time he writes this. And he knows that there will be another generation and the church after him that has not seen with their own eyes the resurrected Christ. And that really motivates a lot of what he's writing here. He's had some time to reflect, to think about this stuff for you know a few decades now, really. And he writes so that those who have not seen Jesus will believe. That's what it says at the end of the gospel. It says, I'm writing so that you will know, that you will believe in him, even though you haven't seen him. And he even says, you know, in the, in the Thomas situation, he says, blessed are those who believe and haven't seen. And that's us. It's a hard thing to understand, man. I'm going to need another service for that. I don't know who's preaching tonight, but that'd be a good topic. It's all there. Jesus is the logos. Means the word. He's the voice. He's the intention. He's the declaration of God. Jesus is the true light. And so while God said, let there be light in creation, John looks back and says, God said, let there be Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus is the creator of everything. You know, Paul really elaborates on this in some of his letters. And then, and then of course, verse 14, which we all love. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. That word dwelled, tented, tabernacled, set up camp, camped out. And again, it brings to mind the tent of meeting, doesn't it? God and human in Jesus. Heaven and earth in one, united together in Jesus of Nazareth. Amen? Amen. You believe that? That's why we're here, right? So if this is all true, I don't know, maybe you're here today and you're hearing the amens and you're not as convinced. And that's okay. But if this is all true, I wonder what you might expect Jesus to say when he arrives on the scene. You know, if what John says is true as he looks back on this, what would it look like if we just had a summary, maybe, of what Jesus was preaching as he walked around for a few years in the Galilean deserts and, and into the cities and all of that? How would he communicate simply the depth and the drama of what had happened? And I think we do have that. And this is what he said. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Both John the Baptist and Jesus preached this idea. John paving the way, of course, and then Jesus picking it up. But through his actions, Jesus didn't just say this thing, but he showed it. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said it, but he showed it. 
And what he said and showed over and over again in every speech, in every miracle, in every parable, was that heaven was closer than they thought. So what happens when the rule of heaven comes near to sickness? What happens when the rule of heaven comes near to demonic oppression? What happens when the kingdom of heaven comes near to mental illness? What happens when the kingdom of God comes near to blindness? Jesus said it and showed it. He was a walking, talking tent of meeting. And everywhere that he went, the power of the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And he showed it. And when he said that the kingdom of God was near, he showed it. This was Jesus' prime focus. He attempted to communicate the closeness of the kingdom of heaven through the parables, right? How, how did he start off so many of his parables? The kingdom of heaven is like unto. The kingdom of heaven is like unto. The kingdom of heaven is like unto. And the beauty of those parables is that it's all really familiar Stories. And as you're standing there and, and listening to Jesus, I wonder if you start to think, heaven's a lot closer than I thought. And he stepped into some really tough situations. People who had passed on, apparently, you know, people who hadn't seen since they were born, they were blind, people who were lame. People were dropped through roofs. They were so desperate to get an answer for their friend. He stepped into some tough situations and he showed that the kingdom was at hand. This is why we pray in the way that Jesus taught the disciples to pray, isn't it? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. When we pray for a sickness to be healed or a friend to be delivered or for our own peace in the middle of a difficult circumstance, we're not praying for a magic trick. We're praying for the kingdom and the rule of heaven to come into our particular situation. That's what it's about. And it's not just for nothing. It's not so for people can look at you and say, oh, look, he can do a magic trick. That's often the way they wanted to treat Jesus. But Jesus says, you're missing the point. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is bigger than just somebody being healed. This is the new reality that I'm calling you into. And that ended up getting him killed. Because that's a bigger message than just some small town magician it was a political statement it, or it became one for the people that it offended it's a kingdom of, it's a it's a it's a comment on a new reality the kingdom of heaven is right here at hand and that's why we pray the way that we do we can do all of that because God is in Christ, meaning that there is a place that heaven and earth finally are united, finally are united, where heaven's rule is embodied. 
and the barriers between us and God have been broken down. And it's in Jesus Christ alone. Are we okay? Let's talk about those cherubim for a minute. These angelic beings pop up a few times in scripture. You may have seen representations of them. There's, you know, in pictures or children's Bible story books or something. One of the most significant times I would say that these cherubim pop up is in Genesis 3. You know, just after kind of the stuff we were talking about earlier, after the fall of humanity in the garden and there's some judgments that are handed out and then we're told this in Genesis 3 verse 24. It says, so he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way the tree of life. Such, such a sad thing, isn't it? To have access to the tree of life, to have access to the thing that gives you life and then to be cut off. And there's all kinds of theories out there about why that was necessary. But it seems true nonetheless, regardless of your theories, that there can't be two gods. There's only room for one in my life. And to the degree that I want to be God in my life is the degree to which I lose life. Perhaps the next most significant time we see these cherubims is in the building of the tabernacle. Exodus 36, 35. It says, He made a veil of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It was worked with an artistic design of cherubim. The tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And there, to guard the way into the Holy of Holies, to guard the way to the mercy seat where God's Shekinah glory comes down and meets with the people, guarding the way is the cherubim. And then, the static version of that, the temple. And of course, in Solomon's way, he did not skimp on cherubim. There's... There's cherubim hovering over the mercy seat, not just on the seat itself, but apparently kind of, there's like, they're like 10 feet tall or something. It's crazy. That's Solomon's way. Very elaborate. First Kings chapter six, verse 31 says this. And for the entering of the oracle or the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive tree. The lintel and side posts were a fifth part of the wall. The two doors also were of olive tree and he carved upon them carvings of cherubims and palm trees and open flowers and overlaid them with gold and spread gold upon the cherubims and upon the palm trees. And this is of of course all in addition for, for Solomon to the cherubim prominently displayed on either side of the mercy seat and you've probably seen that image of them with the wings spread over the mercy seat. But I find their presence on the curtain especially intriguing based on Genesis 3 because of that idea that it would have, I think, had behind it that they're somehow guarding the way, meaning, okay, we're trying to restore something that we had in Eden, but we've got to do it very carefully. 
Do you see that? We know that God is faithful to the covenant. He's made an approach. He wants to meet with us, but these cherubims still need to be here because in some sense we can't really restore entirely what we've lost. And that's, that's the tragic thing of it all, is that there's a reminder there of what we've lost. And it's not unlike some of our own lives, is it? There are things that guard the way back to our joy. Things that seem insurmountable. Things that seem a little too dangerous to try to get by, to try to regain what we've lost. God's meeting place. The temple, the tabernacle, still guarded by cherubim. In the Hebrew worldview, particularly in the, in the time of Jesus, there was one place where God might meet and dwell with his people. And I say might because in the first century, not everyone was sure that God was still present there. That was up for debate. It sure didn't seem so given the circumstances that I mentioned earlier. Roman occupation. If God is with us, then why are we imprisoned here? And this is what makes the next mention of the curtain, I think, so, so wonderful. Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. We get the picture of Jesus on the cross. In the last moments of his life, the perfect, sinless life, and Jesus, verse 50 says, when he had cried again with a loud voice, he yielded up the ghost. There was an ending happening here. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake and the rocks rent. There's a couple of things I, hear, I see here and I hope you'll get the picture too. In that moment, when Jesus breathes his last, it's as if the cherubims were relieved of their duties. Doesn't it seem like that? And because of where Jesus is, does it not point to a new tree of life? A cross. A cross. It's as if the gospel writer is trying to show us that there is no longer a need for the cherubim to guard the way to the place where heaven and earth meet. And, and notice that when it happened, when the temple, the, the curtain in the temple was torn in two, that the earth did quake and the rocks broke because what happened was earth shattering. What was going on in heaven had an impact on earth. It's a way of saying, you need to get it out of your head that this, the temple, is where God is going to meet you from now on. Because it's not. It's in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The living presence of God in the flesh. Destroy this temple. Do you remember when Jesus said that? Destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. We've been working on this temple for 45 years. Destroy this temple. This temple. Jesus knew who he was. 
Behold, a greater than the temple is here. I think Paul captures the idea so starkly in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. Which in Greek, hilasterion, mercy seat. God hath set forth to be a mercy mercy seat through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. The place of meeting is the place of atonement. The act of the cross is the mercy seat. And in Jesus is the fullness of the glory of God. And what does it look like? Not judgment, but mercy. Music could come back this morning. Let's be honest today. It's easy to live as if Jesus is not present. I'm going to say that again because, you know, People got up and walked out, and maybe, maybe you missed it. But it's easy as if Jesus is not present to live that way. Because we can't physically see him. Right? We can't. It's the same problem, though, that John was trying to address with his gospel. And so I'm comforted by that. And he actually says that there's a special blessing for me to believe in the Jesus that I haven't laid eyes on yet, physically. And we say that Jesus is alive, we say that Jesus is real, and we say he's even present in some way, right? Probably said it today, and you're going to say it about the service today. I felt the presence of God. But often we live as if none of it's true. We believe in God's presence, but we associate him with a physical bricks and mortar temple, a church building. And God flipped over tables through the Old Testament and through the New Testament, and he jumped through hoops to try to get you to realize that he's trying to get close to you, closer than the altar here on Sunday, right in your situation. The one you are afraid to go back to outside those doors. That's where God wants to meet you. Right back out there in that situation, you have no idea how it's going to get addressed, how it's going to get fixed. And that's where God wants to meet you. The whole New Testament 
was about the living presence of God coming to dwell with us, even at their conclusions. And we get that a little mixed up sometimes, don't we? We, we sometimes read the end of the gospels as if Jesus was leaving. And that's true, but only in some sense, not entirely. And you don't have to believe me about that. Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me. Where? Just in heaven, because that's all that I really care about. No, heaven and earth, where you live, at your house, in your bedroom. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, behold, see it. That's what lo means. See it, behold it. Listen, one translation even says, remember. I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. I'm with you. The end of the Gospels tells me he's with me. Not that he's gone. It says he's with me. And I know, I know, I get it. There's a day coming when physically he'll return to this realm, right? Whatever you want to call it. I get that. But the Gospels telling me he hasn't left as much as I thought he left. He's here. Heaven is closer than I thought. It looks like Jesus is leaving, but he's not leaving in the way we think. And he hasn't left in the way that you thought because he says he's with us always. And I just can't help but get the sense today that heaven is closer and we think, but have you forgotten? And the question is this morning, what does it mean for your life now that you're being reminded? He is with you. Let's stand. Would you wait on the Lord with me today? I don't know what this is cause for today. Perhaps each individual will respond differently to the words that have been spoken here today. It's at least, it's at least, at the very least, cause for celebration because Jesus is here. And if that's not a reason to celebrate, then there ain't one. Jesus is here. God came and he is here. Perhaps it'll hit you a little differently today. And you'll be broken, realizing that the place of meeting is the place of atonement, where blood was spilled on a mercy seat for your sins. And perhaps it'll hit you just a little bit differently when you realize that when you step out those doors under those exit signs in a few minutes, you're not, you don't have to leave the presence of God, but you can take it with you. Perhaps even, if you'd pray this way this morning, he's gone before you.
Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Would you pray it with me? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. Our Father in heaven, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done in my situation, in the thing that I'm facing, in the thing that I'm afraid of, in the doubts that I'm feeling, in the uncertainty that's ahead. Kingdom of God, come into my life. Breath of God, breathe into me. Heavenly Father, meet me in this place today. Thank you, Jesus. Would we worship together as, the, as we sing today? I don't know what you normally do on a Sunday morning, but if you want to come down to an altar and meet God in this place, you can. But just remember that he's leaving here with you if you'll have him. Let's worship together today. Thank you, Jesus. We love you.